Somebody looted a, a local bar here in Lunenburg. Lunenburg, Nova Why? Scotia. A little tiny town of like 4,000. Somebody broke into the local bar and stole all their frozen food. <laughs> all of Nova Scotia has only 41 cases of the virus and we've already turned to looting. I feel safer that we actually are in a house with a fully fueled chainsaw. I understand what it was for now. We always talk about how, like, small towns are friendlier and big cities are so atomized, you know. But, like, when the small towns go down, it will be neighbor against neighbor and it will be all the bloodier for having known each other. (laughs) In fairness, like, people who choose to live this far out of society are just waiting for this. Oh, yeah, like, they're already half feral. This is what they've been prepared for. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a tower, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm a quarantined version of Janelle. Ah, uh, yes. I am currently responsibly self-isolating, but Janelle is legit quarantined after being evacuated by her dad to the sweet embrace of her homeland. Back in Nova Scotia. Yeah, New York City is now effectively a leper colony, so I'm in full quarantine yeah. in Canada. I'm in my parents' <laughs> house, which is a full five miles from the nearest neighbor. I can speak to no one but my father, who believes in aliens and eats nothing but meat. It's been a real experience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We knew the apocalypse was going to be weird. We didn't know it was going to be this weird. My dad is effectively, like, if Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation believed in lizard people. (laughs) I'm having a weird end times. This is not... How I expected to greet the end of mankind. I mean, there are a few places you could be safer from a, a snot plague. Like, insofar as we are in the <laughs> hand sanitizer apocalypse, you're pretty well set up. You are, There's not another human being for miles, and you have a literal apocalypse pantry. <laughs> we do. I was like, I my parents have had this house for several years now. This is their, like retirement the world can fuck off house i did not grow up in this house but they've they've had it for a while and uh, i come home pretty regularly and i was home like the second day of my quarantine with my father and uh we're like cooking i ran out of tomato sauce or something and my dad's like just grab some from the apocalypse pantry i was like the fucking (laughs) what and sure enough what i thought was you for years, what I have thought was a utility closet in the basement is, in fact, a full-on doomsday-style apocalypse pantry. It's it's like <laughs> some 10 Cloverfield Lane shit in my parents' basement. I had no idea. Uh, just, we don't know our parents, truly. Uh, they, they still have to find a way to surprise you. Oh, yeah. My dad knew that when he brought me back that he and I would have to be quarantined for two weeks. Even my mother isn't home. She's staying in her own apartment. Mm. Which is, you know, both a, a safety and for the sake of their failing marriage. But uh, my dad was like, the day before he came to get me, he was like, okay, I'm stocking up on the essentials. Groceries, toilet paper, cleaning supplies, chainsaw fuel. And I was like, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
one of these things is not like the others. This is, you know this isn't The Walking Dead, Dad. Like, you know that that's not what this is, right? (laughs) I need to hear you say that you're not going to go chainsaw the neighbor the first time he starts looking a little green. (laughs) Is that how we deal with the COVIDs when they start crawling up the driveway moaning for brains? Like, what? Why? (laughs) Like... You have internal heating, don't you? You don't don't just have a wood stove. We do, in fact, have a wood stove, but it's a backup because the power grid's terrible. We're in the- Of course you have a wood stove, but you don't just have a wood stove. No, it's just my dad more than once has been like, you know, when people start to turn, I'm like, again, dad, this is not a zombie plague. Nobody's (laughs) going to turn. They're not going to turn. They're just going to stop breathing. What is- What? They will turn dead. Yeah, like they we're not this is not the living dead. This is the dead dead. They're not going to do anything after they're dead. They're, this is just dead classic, classic. And, and like it's been similarly but if not classic. not to the same degree, but it's been similarly weird on this coast. Like when I was preparing on the day like that I just sort of like hold up in my apartment uh, as as the weak asthmatic nerd that I am, unprepared to survive, like I like I feel kind of personally attacked that this is what is happening to us. I I'm like I'm like okay, so like my <laughs> one weakness, breathing. Um, <laughs> sure, but go ahead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just air. You mean air? Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, because that's the only thing that stands between you and death. Just air. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, when I was preparing to, like, cause, like, I just went out, like, I bought myself some milk, like, a reasonable amount of milk, which I then just immediately drank all of, because apparently my response to stress is just to stress chug dairy until the pain goes away. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a very big difference between what you consider to be a reasonable amount of milk and what literally anyone else on this planet considers to be a reasonable amount of milk. Those are not the same thing. I met a dude who is a former, um, he's a former personal trainer, and he was talking about, like, he's like, do you have any idea how hard it is to drink an entire gallon of milk? How hard it is to just force yourself to drink a gallon of milk a day? And I'm like, force? <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I enjoy it. (laughs) I relish the opportunity. When I left New York, I was running a a bit of a fever and I had a cough that's still kind of going. But I don't really know if that's coronavirus or just the fact that I lived in East Harlem and worked in the South Bronx. Like, a low-grade fever is just sort of, like, the expected immuno-response. It's like, on the one hand, I might have been exposed to coronavirus. On the other hand, I was also exposed to the New York subway system. So, (laughs) the the, the exact path of my illness is somewhat ambiguous. Um, you know, like, obviously we do not talk about, like, public events or politics on this podcast very often, but, like, in this circumstance, politics and current events just sort of happened to us. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is coming to you because we currently both have a great deal of spare time. I'm just waiting for, like, the virus to take me. Uh, one of my boyfriend's co-workers tested positive yesterday, which is a good sign. So I... I was apparently just directly exposed to the virus right away, despite my 
uh, attempts to be a, a little East Harlem hermit. Uh, mm. Didn't work. So, <laughs> so nobody lick me. I'm currently on an island, so you need to actually ford a tidal river in order to lick me, but don't do it. It's not worth yeah, the effort. You, you, you are no different than a subway turnstile. You should not be licked. You probably should not even be touched. <laughs> I... <laughs> I don't know how I feel about being called a subway turnstile. You know, every once in a while, like, someone gets confused when they're trying to push past you, and then there's this, like, the chunk of junk, and they get caught in your gears. <laughs> I was gonna say, Jessica, I am in a committed, monogamous relationship. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> I just, like... <laughs> Again, I don't know how relationships work, and I don't want to find out. <laughs> I assume marriage oh, is a lot God. just like being stuck in a subway turnstile. <laughs> is that not what a committed oh, relationship God. is? <laughs> I once got my shirt caught on a desk. I, I think that's what love is. <laughs> Your mother listens to this podcast. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, she, she likes it. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't care for your potty mouth, Missy, but <laughs> she's a fan of the show. <laughs> My parents are both maritimers. It, it, I come by it honestly. Ah, uh, enough about current events, transitory and unimportant. Today's topic. Uh, <laughs> That's what matters. That is what matters. That is what you shall take away from today. Not the looming risk that Janelle might have the COVIDs any second now, that she may turn and her father may be forced to kill his own daughter with his chainsaw just to save himself. <laughs> Please make a low-budget Netflix original if he does, though. I demand it. <laughs> it's what I would have wanted. But today's topic is a genderless former Quaker preacher who led a small offshoot sect of similarly nonconformist followers known as the Society of Universal Friends in late 18th century North America. Or in other words, Jessica's best life. <laughs> I have had multiple people, multiple people <coughs> send me the Wikipedia page for this person and just go, found your past life. <laughs> And uh, I read it, and holy wow. <laughs> it's true. There's no way that this isn't you. This is evidence that there like, that we live multiple lives. This is proof of reincarnation. <laughs> it's the most convincing thing I've ever seen. You're either a time lord or a reincarnation. This is, it's just you. There are two options here. It is me. And, like, I don't remember this one, but maybe it's my future rather than my past. Revolutions are, by definition, times of massive social upheaval. In particular, violent revolutions are usually a response to some sort of underlying crisis that the current political order is incapable of addressing or refusing to address. In the case of the American Revolution, it was the English mercantilist system, which restricted trade with other foreign powers and prevented economic development in the colonies, so that they could act as a captured market for British goods. Further, British citizens in the colonies had far fewer rights and little to say in governing affairs compared to their counterparts in Britain. Taxation intended to punish and curb economic activity deemed outside the motherland's interest pushed many a colonial subject into black market trade and smuggling. Everyone who's listening to this will get to experience 
a political revolution up close and personal when you're setting your landlord on fire two months from now. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. I bet I'll be festive. <laughs> Uh, as, as, like, this will be very familiar to anyone who has paid any attention to American history. Although, I, I do find it interesting as a note that the Boston Tea Party was not in response to a tax hike, but actually a tax decrease. Because it was, it was the English futzing with price margins in order to undercut, uh, smuggled Dutch tea. Hmm. You'll also learn a lot about revolutions by dating a French person who just True. mumbles the word guillotine every time <laughs> rich people are in the news. Just it's a it's a compulsive response to Jeff Bezos's <laughs> face at this point. <laughs> it lives in their blood. In the case of the French Revolution, speaking of which, it was a combination of the French state incurring massive debts funding the American Revolution as a way of weakening their perennial rival England, plus a rigid case system and a highly aggressive tax system that granted wealthy clergy and nobility broad exemptions and even the ability to raise taxes of their own on peasants. The bulk of the French state's extravagance rested on commoners, largely rural, agrarian, and poor, though likewise containing a small intellectual middle class that came more and more to embrace egalitarian enlightenment ideals. Bankrupt yourself to own the libs, and by the libs I mean the British. Weakening a foe at the expense of just destroying your own economy. Uh, this was exacerbated by deregulation and speculation in the grain market, leading to price spikes and widespread shortages. As old institutions strain and collapse, people find themselves pushed out of their traditional roles, and in the lead-up to both the French and American revolutions, women paid, played a key role. In France, peasant women who ran households were heavily involved in the bread riots that led up to the French Revolution, and culminated in the October March on Versailles, where a mob of women formed in the Parisian in the Parisian marketplace ransacked the city armory for weapons, marched to the palace, and essentially kidnapped the king, the royal family, and the majority of the National Assembly. As one does when one runs out of bread. Again, see the coronavirus situation in three weeks. <laughs> Yeah, like, this is this is gonna be, like, if you're listening to this late, this is gonna feel eerily like the news. Um, and, like, you know, sometimes you're just hanging out with the girls, you're having, you're having a ladies' night, things get a little bit wild, they get a little bit crazy, you get a little bit tipsy, and then you kidnap the king. <laughs> if you're listening to this in mid-April, Jessica is currently in the dairy aisle of a Safeway with a shotgun. <laughs> I am wearing a bandana that looks like the queen's face over my own face. <laughs> I'm ready for blood. That's that's deeply haunting. <laughs> Do it for very Liz. wrong with that. <laughs> uh Similarly, in the decades leading up to the American Revolution, women took on notable public and political roles in the resistance effort against invasive British rule, circulating petitions, creating women's patriotic organizations, and boycotting British goods. In both cases, after the culmination of the revo of revolution, women were shut out of the discussion on how the new nation was to operate, and there ended up being something of a snapback effect. In post-revolutionary France, French women found themselves with fewer rights and freedoms than under the old regime, particularly after the introduction of, of the Napoleonic Code into French law. In post-revolutionary America, women were once more pushed out of, the public, out of public life into the private sphere as part of a cultural shift 
inextricably intertwined with religion. Religion in America has always been important, but it has never been particularly cohesive, composed primarily of a balkanized system of local churches and loose franchise-style decentralized Protestant denominations. The largest religious denomination currently in the United States is Roman Catholicism at 23%, due mostly to later in-migration of Hispanics and Europeans, despite around 74% of Americans self-identifying as Christian. This statistical anomaly is because the largest religious group in the United States, at around 49%, is just dozens of broad Protestant belief systems organized into loose coalitions of independent churches, no branch of which exceeds 5% of the American population. Interesting. America doesn't so much have organized religion as it has disorganized religion. The largest non-Christian religion is Judaism at 2%. Basically, this is just a range of fractal schisms. I was going to say, though, my favorite female-led my favorite female -led religiously linked uh, uprising is definitely the New York City Jewish meat riots. <laughs> Basically, in the early 1900s, the price of kosher beef went up like six cents, but not regular beef. And uh, basically a bunch of Jewish women took to the streets and threw meat at the police and <laughs> ransacked the Lower East Side until the price of meat went down. Basically oh, my boy. favorite. <laughs> when grocery prices go up, the women go apeshit. When worse comes to worse, boycott your local butcher and throw beef at the police, I guess. <laughs> huh, is that why they're called the pigs? We will overcome. Is that why they're called pigs, Janelle? <laughs> <laughs> Is it because they're not kosher? You gotta hit them with beef. Say <laughs> buff. Oh, that's a whole discussion. Oh no. <laughs> if if you'd like a comparison of a reasonably similar country, um, we'll have to go with Canada, which is just sort of America's uh, control group. Uh, Canada. The... <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be seeing that in about, oh, three weeks. Anyway, uh... America's kind of like the dark reflection of Canada. <laughs> A we're, darker we're timeline. what could have been if, if America had, had listened. Yeah, um, this is going to be dark to listen to when we go back to it. Anyway, I'm upset. But, um... <laughs> Canada retained sustained Anglican involvement, had a large French Catholic founder population, and went under no similar violent revolutionary cultural upheaval, and is currently 39% Roman Catholic, 6% United Church, and 5% Anglican, uh, with uh, non the largest non-Christian religion being Muslims at 3%. It is true, though. In the United States, finding out what denomination somebody identifies as is effectively meaningless. Tells you nothing. Somebody telling you they're Baptist does not tell you whether they're in, like, a regular church or if they're in a full-on cult. It's- none of it's no, helpful. None of it is helpful. It's just like, oh, you're a Baptist. So either you are set fairly normal church, or you literally think that gay people cause hurricanes. <laughs> like, it, it's ambiguous. <laughs> I was say, like- the name of somebody's church will not get you very far. I have no idea if you pray before meals or if you throw rocks at gay people. I just, I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. That you'll have, like, people who go to mega churches, which is a mm. fascinating phenomenon. Like, my favorite, my favorite religious leader, Creflo Dollar. <laughs> what? The prosperity gospel. 
Oh yeah, American Prosperity Gospel is my favorite. It's not going to survive to the 22nd century because Absolutely they're not. still having church sessions in the middle of this pandemic. So none of them are really going to make it much longer. <laughs> but, uh... but like Prosperity Gospel people, like their preachers, they're like they they don't really dig much into the whole like life of poverty and aestheticism that like is normally associated with religious leaders. It's very much give me money and maybe you'll get some. Maybe if you give me it's basically racketeering. It's like if you give if you all give me money, then maybe Jesus will be nice to you. If not, well, <laughs> actually this pandemic is probably the best opportunity you'll ever have to find out if your small independent church is a cult. If your <laughs> church is still having services right now and expects you to come, you are in a cult. Yeah, that is a cult. Full on. It, Full on cult. If your church has switched to a more independent contractor model until the pandemic subsides, you're probably okay. If, if you get to pray at home and your church is encouraging that, you're probably good. If, if they are still insisting you come, they have just outsourced the Kool-Aid to a virus, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and if your church leader is still insisting that you have sex with him covered in goat's blood during the yeah. pandemic, you already knew you were in a cult. At this point, yeah. you're just enjoying it. You're doing <laughs> this on purpose. <laughs> this is a commitment you have made. You're not a fool. <laughs> You didn't need to be told that that was a cult. You were well aware. <laughs> if you are currently living on Jared Leto's cult island, you're in a cult. It's in the news. You can you could have Googled yeah. that. Yeah. If you can Google whether or not you're in a cult, you're in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Important things to clear up. Also, if you can't Google anything, you're also in a cult. <laughs> As we head into a cult-adjacent episode, it's, it's good to have these things nailed down. Yeah, make our definitions clear. But uh, it is a great truth <laughs> of the human condition that when tensions run high, a certain number of people will be prone to paranoia, conspiratorial thinking, and preparing for the clearly imminent apocalypse. No pun intended. Uh, I wrote this well before <laughs> Anyone... this shit started going down. <laughs> I, I say... did not intend for this to be so eerily prescient. <laughs> If your grandmother has 400 rolls of toilet paper and she thinks that coronavirus is actually caused by 5G Wi-Fi, yeah. <laughs> That's who we're talking about. This is how bad things have gotten. I normally spend a disproportionate amount of time telling my relatives to stop saying that this is an attack by the one world government to undermine the Trump administration through a false flag attack. <laughs> Like, I have spent a lot of time over the past few months telling my various sundry relatives to cut it out. And it is now that shit has gotten serious that my other cousins have started to go like, maybe Jessica might be right and we should calm down. <laughs> One world government is fun. That's, oh, yeah. uh, that's fun. I got my... My family members are more of a, this is a new kind of AIDS that was made in a lab and is being used as population control. That's, that's where my, uh, where my social networks are at. Uh, I'm fond of the one I heard the other day, which was, I'm not gonna wash my hands at all because this is just the work of the Illuminati. And I'm like, how about you just wash your hands anyway, you disgusting person? <laughs> <laughs> you filthy <Yeah>. human being. <laughs> Please. 
You're not even gonna have to worry about coronavirus. It's pink eye that's gonna get you first. <laughs> uh, but other people will turn to new and radical religious movements and fractional spiritualities to lend them the certainty and sense of connection to the divine that established religious order is no can no longer provide in times of trouble. Yeah, I mean, cults specifically prey on people in distress. Mm-hmm. That's why depressed actors just, like, bam. <laughs> you are a failing not, actor. Not that we're talking about Scientology in <laughs> particular. <laughs> Just as an example, there might be a large religious order that preys on people who are struggling with the demands of being famous. Just as an example. Oh, you know, naming no one in particular. But uh, the term love bombing that's that's become quite ubiquitous in uh, psychology and in counseling circles where an abusive partner overwhelms you with love and affection at the beginning of a relationship, that actually comes from cult tactics. Mm-hmm. That actually comes from studying how people are inducted into religious cults. It's warm fuzzies. Basically, when you you just need a hug. People who join cults are just looking for a hug. Basically. Yeah, and then, like, this predatory organization gives them that hug. Like, you, you don't normally get <laughs> virgin sacrifices on the first cult meeting. That happens a ways in. They wait until you get attached before they ask for your firstborn. Oh, yeah, it's all love and hugs and acceptance, and then, you know, six months later, you're standing over the corpse of Shannon Tate. This is a process. There's some steps. It's, it's not just like, you know, you're you're at a really fun youth group, then you, there's blood on your hands. You know, there were some steps in between. Um, <laughs> not that I'm speaking from experience. I was gonna say, what kind of fucking church did you go to? <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, Baptist. Explains some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't clear anything up. The 1730s and 40s had seen the first Great Awakening, an era where Protestantism in the 13 colonies went through a revival that broke down much of the barriers between existing Protestant denominations into a form of American-specific trans-denominational identity. Elevated religious passion and euphoria over doctrine and formal religious education, and emphasized ideas of a personal relationship to the divine over traditional church hierarchies. <laughs> Less memorizing, more just kind of vibing with Jesus. Yeah, it's just like, but how do you feel, bro? It's, it's, this, is, this is very much a rejection of, like, academic theology, and more into, like, truthiness. Like, what do you feel with your gut? Stop memorizing the Bible to own the libs, and also to know God, I guess? God isn't a thing you can know, it's a thing you feel. They just, basically they started looking at people who'd memorized a lot of verses and just went, NERD! Geek! At, at best, this empowered individual believers and weakened social control of an incredibly intimate aspect of spirituality. And at worst, it expressed a certain anti-intellectualism and conflation of emotionality with correctness that remains strong within American culture to this day. Remember, it's the intensity of you feel that makes your facts important. That's no way. That's a dangerous ideology. (laughs) No way that can end poorly. Uh, Within this movement, there was a rejection of traditionally masculine symbols of power and affluence, alcohol, wealth, and violence, and an embrace of some of Christianity's more typically feminine values and metaphors, such as the earthly church and its followers, both male and female, as the bride of Christ, and the idea of conversion as a rebirth into a second life, enabling a relative rise in female religious leadership. 
get that. Yeah. Later, during the revolution itself, there was a reactionary period of Christian masculinity that recentered a more martial conception of male adherents as soldiers of Christ, and consequently reasserted women's roles as mother and nurturers to the next generation of spiritual warriors. Hmm. Our story begins in the British colony of Rhode Island, where uh, Jemima Wilkinson was born on November 29th, 1752 the eighth child of Quakers Jeremiah and Amy Wilkinson. Her mother later died giving birth to her 12th or 13th child, question mark, when Wilkinson was around 12. Early biographers generally depict young Jemima Wilkinson as stubborn and lazy, but attractive and intelligent with a liking for nice clothes and what little entertainment could be found in buttfuck nowhere Rhode Island in the 1770s. <laughs> I was gonna say, ooh, Quaker colonies in the... Yeah, <laughs> not exactly a rockin' nightlife. Not a hotbed of fashion and entertainment. No, not a lot of nightlife. Yeah, this is the sort of place where, like, having buttons is a little is a little highbrow. Oh, do you think you're above me, you and your five <laughs> buttons? Ooh, I bet you polish them every night, you vain harlot. <laughs> is that what is that what Quakers are? I thought. They were just all about eating plain oatmeal and not harming living things. I thought that that was... That's, uh, that's a lot of it. That's a lot of it. But, like, I'm assuming, like, all the thoughts of the, um, T-H-O-T-S of the, uh, of the 18th century were just known for having overly polished buttons and pe- being too good to go down to the barn raising with young Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> I assume this is first-hand knowledge because we are discussing your past life. But I was going to say, if this wasn't your past life, you would have made a very judgy 20th century Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> and a very weird one. Wilkinson was likewise an avid reader of both the Bible and various Quaker texts. It's difficult to corroborate any of this history, because most contemporaneous records would not have found the unmarried daughter of a prominent small-town Quaker the slightest bit interesting. A woman. (laughs) A woman. Unmatted. Barely worth any notice. (laughs) Nonetheless, Wilkinson almost certainly had some interaction with the radical ideas spread by the evangelical movement born out of the Great Awakening only a few decades before. While many Quakers avoided engaging in the conflict between the colonies and the British authorities due to the Society of Friends' strong pacifist principles, others, such as three of Wilkinson's brothers, sided with the colonists and joined the local local militia. The younger two were disowned by the Quakers in March 1776, Patience, an older sister, was disowned in April for having a child out of wedlock, and Wilkinson herself in September for her association with the evangelical New Lights. They're basically just like the Oprah of excommunication. You get disowned, and And you you get get disowned. disowned. Like, literally half the family, and it is a large family, has already been kicked out of the church at this point. Where do you even go? Do you just wander out into the waste, or do you just keep living in the community, but now you're sort of shunned now at the store. Yeah, you just sort of get side-eyed at the, at the, at the, at the local sock hop. They probably didn't have sock hops. <laughs> I think they just had barn raisings, to be probably honest. Probably not. You would, have, you would have been disowned for attending the sock hop. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd be like, this just feels like the sort of community where dancing is illegal. <laughs> Perhaps the most notable moment in Wilkinson's early life, came a month later in October 1776, 
a few short months before the Continental Congress's Declaration of Independence, seceding from the British Empire. The Continental Navy ship Columbus docked in Providence, bringing with it prisoners from captured British vessels and a brutal infectious disease, very likely typhus, which quickly spread to local communities, including Cumberland, where the Wilkinsons resided. 23-year-old Jemima Wilkinson fell severely ill on Saturday, October 5th. Despite the intervention of a doctor, her fever worsened over the course of the following week, and by Thursday the 10th, her family assumed that she would soon pass away. That's what she gets for not social distancing. That's what you get. <laughs> Wash your hands. <laughs> if, if back in the day, if they had simply used soap and water, they could have prevented all of this. <laughs> Only That's you can prevent learned. typhus. See, I've been social distancing since I was born. I'm very proud of it. By which I mean, I had no friends <laughs> growing up. <laughs> oh, no, it sounded less sad the first way. But for <laughs> real, though, how do you... When, when you live in an era when the soap is made of lye, it's really not that difficult to avoid an infection. <laughs> I mean, mm. you're gonna lose all your skin because lye. But you won't get typhus. Uh, in the early morning of the 11th, uh, however, Wilkinson rose from bed, recovered. Or perhaps not, because the body, formerly containing one Jemima Wilkinson, then announced that she had in fact died, her soul passing to heaven, her mortal form now animated by a divine genderless spirit sent by God to serve as his messenger of mercy and salvation and warn of the coming apocalypse. Which is one way oh, to get out of my... getting married and pumping out 12 children. <laughs> if I die, if I, if I show up at the breakfast table tomorrow and tell my father that overnight I died and my soul is now inhabited by a genderless spirit come to warn of the coming apocalypse, he would chainsaw me down on the spot. Yeah, because like, clearly you're an ancient alien. <laughs> History Channel warned him about this. <laughs> My dad is not even a superstitious Quaker from the late 1800s. It's it's incredible that they didn't just immediately start throwing rocks. Yeah, oh yeah, it's just like I'm like I'm like I assumed that this would involve a dunking stool. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, yes, I have died. I have no gender and the apocalypse is coming. Doesn't seem like something they'd be really into in early colonial America. Just sort of your daughter who you think was dying just walks up to the breakfast table, just sits down, hammers back a bowl of instant oats, and tells you she's dead. Like, you know, it's a normal morning for a Quaker household. Honestly, religious Americans are struggling to wrap their heads around the no gender thing today. Yeah. So, good luck with Never that. Never mind 200 years, years ago. ago. And, like, an affidavit from the doctor attending claims that while Wilkinson did not, in fact, die, uh, merely recovered rather suddenly in the midst of a severe fever. <laughs> Gosh, what an assessment. Well, she's not dead. How can I tell? A hundred percent of my patients who have died have continued not to be alive. And you can trust me on that. <laughs> Science. But the, uh, the whole, like really, really severe fever thing might provide some other explanation for the uh, apocalyptic visions uh, Wilkinson claimed to experience. Yeah, uh, back before Advil and Tylenol, it was real easy to cook your brain. Oh, you could just bake it right in your skull. 
If you have the option to run a high fever for hours at a time, don't take it. It's you're never gonna be quite right. Yeah, like it's it's your brain is gonna be wonky. Like, (laughs) your skull is basically a fragile, easy-bake oven for your brain matter, and you don't want to go there. (laughs) Like, very little about your brain will be improved by (laughs) deep-frying. Yeah, you're you're as cooked as you need to be. Anything else is just overdone. (laughs) It's, It's not good. I mean, best case scenario, you start believing that you've died and come back as a genderless heaven being. Worst case scenario, you age like an NFL player. From then on, the prophet formerly known as Jemima refused to be called by their former name, dressed in androgynous black robes, and refused gender-specific pronouns. Instead, they declared their title as the Public Universal Friend, often shortened to The Friend, or the P-U-F in written documentation. Uh, this was a name derived from the term public friend, a title given to traveling Quaker preachers. This this just sounds like a teenager going through the most obnoxious version of puberty possible. <laughs> it's, uh, sorry, Mom. <laughs> Rachel isn't real. I am dementia star darkness. <laughs> you will address me as such. <laughs> that is Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way, you uncultured swine. <laughs> I mean, it's a good name. It's a good name. The fact that you and I both know that reference shows that we are super nerdy. Oh, it's it's because none of us had any friends in high school. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Neither of us was well-liked until college, so mm. that's where that comes from. But basically, it does sound like she's going through the most or I guess they, are going through the most obnoxious version of puberty possible. They're dressing all in black, they've given themselves a new name, and they're just refusing to do what they're told. Many historians who saw the friend as a charlatan referred to them using feminine pronouns and their former name, while others take after many of the friend's own followers and use masculine pronouns and their preferred title, including my major source for this podcast, Paul B. Moyer. For my own purposes, however, I will take my cues from the friend themselves and their closest disciples, who exclusively exclusively refer to the friend using gender-neutral terms. Honestly, when you've got a choice between Jemima and public universal friend, there's no choice at all, really. You go public universal friend. You go public universal friend every time. I need no further convincing. <laughs> I'm yeah. sold. Public Universal Friends sounds like they have a lot of friends because they're public. Like I know I've had enough of this <laughs> private friendship. I want public friendship from now on. Is that what socialism is? Just everyone has to be your friend? I like it. It's it sounds like a human version of a free hug sign. Basically just like a a solemn Quaker version of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. The use of the singular they may be unfamiliar for some of our listeners, but I'll do my best to ensure the difference between the singular they for the friend and the plural they for groups of other people is reasonably straightforward. I'm aware that the grammar can be confusing. In a later interview, the public universal friend claims to have attended a meeting of the Society of Friends uh, shortly after their death in the nearby town of Smithfield, in the sense that every town is, in a sense, nearby in Rhode Island. At the meeting, the P-U-F, the Puff, uh, attempted to speak, but after a few words, another Quaker stood and asked them to sit. But they continued. One after another, 
at least six friends in attendance asked the puff to stop, rejecting their attempt to relay their vision. This moment marks a definite break between the friend and, well, the society of friends. Over the next few years, the, f- <laughs> the friend began preaching to a gradually expanding audience, at first in the area around Cumberland, for receiving invitations to speak fur- from further and further afield as their reputation grew. They spoke in churches and houses, but also at executions and funerals, praying for the dead, the condemned, and the executioners themselves. The Friends' early followers included several members of their immediate family, particularly their siblings Stephen, Deborah, Elizabeth, and Marcy, and Patience. Their father, Jeremiah, was dismissed from the Society for Association with the Friend in September 1777. Which, I mean, like... It's hard not to be associated with them. You're their dad. (laughs) This also sounds like an uncomfortably analogous to you starting to wear bow ties and then discovering stand-up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) There is an eerie similarity here. It's around the same stage of life. Uh, You know, it has the same sort of like, oh, gradually expanding circles thing. Like... Honestly, I'm not sure they wouldn't have been doing stand-up had they had the option in 18th century Cumberland. It just sounds like Jessica getting into stand-up comedy. That's... I just, like, I just always wanted to be the center of attention, and I'm not particularly fussed by how I get it. (laughs) Even if I have to die. Even if I have to die and be resurrected as a genderless divine spirit... I want people looking at me. I don't care if I need to die and be resurrected. I don't care if I need to take my pants off. It doesn't matter. You should be looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) Please do not take your pants off. I don't have bail money. Don't make me escalate. Give me what I want. I've been I've been in self-enforced quarantine for nearly a week now. I have like there like I don't remember where my pants are. <laughs> I haven't seen them in a while. You and your roommate have gotten real close. <laughs> there are no secrets left. We didn't have a lot of distance between us to begin with, and now he's the only one I'm legally allowed to hug for the next year. So, (laughs) he might as well get used to me not wearing pants when I do it. (laughs) It's the only way we're gonna survive. (laughs) Make it weird. Make it it so weird. You gotta start out weird, just so that you can escalate later. Again, I do not have the bail money for this. <laughs> Hands to yourself. I mean, they're probably not going to arrest me. I bet the police are busy. <laughs> just just cough on them. Yeah, stand back or I'll cough. I will blow my nose. <laughs> Don't think I won't. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird time to be alive. <laughs> I'm, it's thrilling, isn't it? Ah, man, I hope I'm not dead a month from now. (laughs) Jessica Pigeot, stand-up comedian, reincarnated genderless religious leader, (laughs) bioweapon. Uh, uh, Stephen and Patience had already been dismissed from the Society of Friends, but Marcy was disowned in December 1778, followed by Deborah and Elizabeth in May 1779. Nonetheless, converts I mean, outside the family out of steadily grew. <laughs> oh, everybody's out. You're out. You're out. You're out. Everybody's out. You, like, this was a very exclusive club. 
you can't sit with us. You're supporting <laughs> violence and the overthrow of the British. <laughs> These are not very supportive friends. America is not going to happen. <laughs> this is not a very friendly society of friends. <laughs> By 1779, the front had moved their base of operations to the 14-room mansion of one of their most prominent converts, William Potter, a judge on the Rhode Island Supreme Court. The judge added several oh, rooms wow. to the mansion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. State Supreme Court. Yes. <laughs> they went from, like, f- kicked out of the farmhouse to State Supreme Court really fast. Real fast. In a very few years. Uh, the judge added several rooms to the mansion to provide space for the friend and their meetings, at, and the little rest mansion became known as the Abbey. The friend expanded their ministry significantly into the territory of bordering Connecticut, becoming so popular and getting so many converts, especially among Quakers, that the Society of Friends made even attending a meeting of the Public Universal Friend a disciplinary offense. These are jealous friends. Yeah, this is like, if you're, if you're friends with them, you can't be friends with us. <laughs> Get out. This is some elementary school playground shit. Just in case you're wondering, the Valley Girl accent actually comes from 18th century Quakers. Just, they are catty. <laughs> that's what that's what they sounded like. Thank you for yet another historically accurate accent from Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who lived before 1990 sounded like Winston Churchill or a California Valley Girl. Those are the two <laughs> options. I don't make the rules, I just enforce them. With my inability to do other accents. Speaking of which, I was thinking, I'm like, you know, it's funny, the last time we were physically in the same room as each other, I'm pretty sure you stuck your finger in my nose. I did. That was episode 27. There was a reason for it at the time. Just immediately, first time we were together in over a year, you just shoved your finger right up my nose. (laughs) I had a reason. I cannot. In your defense, you were not looking. You were not looking. You're like, oh, Jessica's in the same room as me. I can touch her right now, and then just right up my face. (laughs) Just. Oh yeah, I did. I jammed my finger right there. Maximal finger insertion. Suicide attempt. Just give me those sweet public fountain germs. Take me (laughs) (laughs) into the light. I know. I know where my doom must come. I tire of this mortal realm. Part of the uh, part of the reason why it was so easy for the PUF to quickly gain Quaker converts was the similarity between the Friends message and the pre-existing value of the Society of Friends, i.e. non-violence, abolition of slavery, and a strong preference for sexual abstinence. Such is the strength of Quaker pacifism and social justice that they hold the odd distinction of the only religious sect to hold a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh. Yeah, they Interesting. just... So, so, Public Universal Friend is basically just Diet Quaker. Quaker Deluxe? Something along the lines. It's, it's basically the difference between, like, it's not even, like, the difference between, like, Coke and Diet Coke. It's the difference between Coke and Pepsi. It's, like, different emphasis, but basically a very similar category of beverage. (laughs) If you don't have Quaker, Public Universal Friend is fine. Basically the margarine. The Public Universal Friend went a bit further than the Society of Friends, however, in that they also disfavored marriage, which was seen as a superior state to sex outside of marriage, but inferior to single celibacy. Around 14% of the Society of Universal Friends remained unmarried throughout their lives, compared to around 5-8% to of white Americans at the time. 
Notably, however, this was less unusual in Quaker communities, where delaying or eschewing marriage was seen as one way to avoid lust and the sinful hierarchies of sex, class, and race. Prior to 1786, in some Pennsylvanian communities, around 10% of Quaker women over the age of 50 had never married. They understood that men, men are a trap. Dick is abundant and of low value. <laughs> I walk down the street and I have thousands of offers. That being said, the uh, I got catcalled the other day. Like, this guy was just like, you know, like, hey, hey, lady. And I'm like, hey. And he's like, One, are look you nice sure? today. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> thanks. One, thanks. are you sure? I've seen me. I was full on in my apocalypse getup. I am wearing pajamas and a fucking robe. Like, I am not at my best, and my best is barely sufficient for any kind of male attention on the street. And, like, I do not care in a fundamental way, and men sense it instinctively. But, like, I'm like, I just appreciated the fact that he was maintaining appropriate social distance. He kept 15 feet away from me at all times. And, you know, I appreciate that. That's you important. may be... You may be a verbally abusive sex pest on the public streets of Vancouver, but you are one with a healthy respect for both of our safeties and the safety of society. So, you know, stop clock. Mm. What's funny about all this is that I kind of expected to, like, face the apocalypse in, like, a badass, like, Mad Max-style costume, but I have been facing down the end of mankind in my dad's sweatpants and a t-shirt I got at a fun run in 2015. Not what I expected. I'm actually kind of disappointed by the lack of spikes. Honestly, like, my main strategy so far, like, one of the symptoms of COVID is that you lose your sense of smell. And the way I responded to that is by just no deodorant. If I can still smell myself, I'm safe. And honestly, that's going to keep people away. They're going to respect my personal bubble. <laughs> you need an adult. <laughs> no. Except your strategy keeps everyone who doesn't have COVID away from you. The only people who will be able to bear to get close to you are people who have the virus. Yeah, and so I know this they're is a dangerous. Strategy, Jessica. If somebody comes at me and they're not immediately repulsed by just a a full concrete wall of smell. Just a just like getting smacked up by the head by a two by four of BO, then I know they're dangerous and I know to run. <laughs> Anyone who gets within golf club swinging range is positive. <laughs> they therefore deserve it. Yeah, and th that's when I can take out the chainsaw. <laughs> no, Jessica does not get a chainsaw. That's not allowed. Jessica gets a chainsaw. <laughs> mm, it's illegal to hug, but it's not illegal to own a chainsaw. <laughs> I like the hand sanitizer apocalypse. This is fun. Oh, boy. Another factor in high Quaker recruitment was the high tensions of the time and the propensity of the Society of Friends towards disowning members who were attracted to the evangelical teachings of the New Lights or who actively supported military causes, swore oaths of loyalty, or paid taxes to the revolutionary government, seen as a breach of strict neutrality. Further, where there is a war and significant disruption of normal order, epidemics are sure to follow, and disease was rampant, with a reach far beyond the battlefield. More than aligning with one side of the conflict or another, the public universal friends' disciples were animated by a shared anxiety of being drawn into the chaos and violence of the time. 
While the followers of the public <laughs> universal friend were frequently subject to ridicule, there was something about, about a strangely dressed, eloquent mystic preaching comfort in the shadow of the apocalypse that spoke to them in a time of danger and uncertainty. Their teachings gave a sense of stability and, importantly, agency. Of particular note among these followers is Sarah Richards, a widow whose marriage had been deeply unhappy. She became the prophet's second in command and primary agent of business, as the prophet did not care to sully themselves with worldly affairs. Uh, Richard even Richards <laughs> even lived with the prophet for some time, and after Richard's death at the age of thirty-six. Uh, the public universal friend raised Richard's daughter, Eliza, as their own child. Platonic lesbian partnership. That's all that I'm <laughs> hearing. Although the public universal friend is genderless, but it's still deeply gay. Yeah, there's something sapphic about this. I'm not quite sure what. Queer platonic domestic partnership. I'm for it. Is it straight if I'm technically a divine reincarnated be being animating the body of a dead Quaker? <laughs> <laughs> Asking the difficult <laughs> questions. But also, what I'm hearing from this is really that there's no better time for you to start your own cult, Jessica. Oh, I'm so ready. I've been ready. I've been waiting. I'm so excited. This is gonna be fun. I mean, please shower first. <laughs> but after that we're gonna be the only cult that has mandatory skype meetings for our sacrifices <laughs> we are going to be a safety first hygienic cult <laughs> this That'll cult is gonna ban touching the only ones to survive <laughs> yeah like honestly as 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 an autistic in a time of deep social distancing and potential chaos like i'm starting to wonder if maybe like, maybe it was always, like, an advantage, a survival advantage, to just sit in a basement alone, eating nachos, and playing Call of Duty for two weeks straight. Like, maybe that was always the next step of humanity. <laughs> oh, my boyfriend has informed me that he fully intends to practice social distancing for the rest of his life. He literally immigrated to America because he was tired of how much Europeans kiss each other on the cheek and he hated it. <laughs> so he, he moved to a continent where that wasn't a thing. And now he doesn't have to shake anybody's hands or hug them. He's having a great time. Oh, he He's must sitting be on so his excited. bed right now eating croutons straight out of a bag. This has been <laughs> the best two weeks of his life. Oh, man. Yeah, see, that was, that was a thing for me, too. People were like, oh, it's so terrible. We won't be able to touch each other. And I'm like, oh, man. Hope nobody knows how excited I am to never oh, no. touch anyone again. <laughs> I've been looking at, like, white gloves You're online all... and just planning the day where I get to, <laughs> with, with pointed superiority, tell people that I don't shake hands. <laughs> Your time has arrived. Like, what are you, some kind of maniac? I don't shake hands. Oh, it's just, this the is world year, is coming Jessica. up, Jessica. Insofar as I don't choke out of my own lungs, this will be glorious. <laughs> there was some matter of controversy over whether or not the public universal friend saw themselves as the prophesied second coming of Jesus. They certainly never claimed to be, so... At most, they made use of ambiguous Bible verses 
traditionally interpreted as referring to Jesus, and that, alongside somewhat dubious descriptions of their ministry, often second- and third-hand accounts from unknown sources, developed into a widespread rumor that the friend saw themselves as the reborn messiah. One of the most notable of the first-hand witnesses was Abner Brownell, a former associate of the friend who made such claims only after an ugly falling out when he had fear, clear financial motive to do so, in order to move copies of the book he published them in. But, I mean, if they were the reincarnation of Jesus, then that would be even better for my cult. Because, like, obviously. <laughs> that being said, I'm pretty sure I am not Jesus. Jesus. I'm Genderless Jesus. Jesus. I think Jesus would look good in a bow tie, don't you? Makes sense to me. Jesus doesn't even need a penis. <laughs> Just Come on. slows him down. <laughs> Makes him less aerodynamic. He's gonna need to. He's gonna need to be able be able to be able to survive in a wind tunnel if he's gonna br- bring this the, bring the kingdom of heaven. Just come on. If we weren't going to hell before, we certainly are now. <laughs> Testicles are unnecessary baggage when you're on the run. <laughs> the image of Jesus Christ standing in a wind tunnel observing the air drag on his testicles <laughs> is something that will never leave me. <laughs> Clearly, second time round, he's going for a more efficient model. He's trading in. He's moving up. <laughs> If I ever become wealthy, I'm going to have that painted as a fresco on my ceiling. There are also numerous accounts directly contradicting the idea, where the friend rather claimed to be merely the chosen messenger of Jesus and the comforter of God's people rather than their messiah. Ah, more of a Muhammad than a Jesus. Similarly, the majority of the friend's followers never claimed them to be any kind of divine savior outside of a few of the nuttier fringe, such as a woman named Alice Hazard, who likewise claimed to be a prophet. As for who the comforter is, there we look to the book of John, verse 1426. The Geneva Bible and King James Bible, respectively the first mass-produced English Bible and the definitive English translation of the Bible at the time, quote, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach he shall teach you all things. When asked who they thought they were or questioned about their gender, the friend is known to have replied on various occasions, I am who I am, a quote from the book of Exodus when God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. You know, in in Christianity, you don't see a lot of Holy Ghost fans. It's uh it's not a popular one. No, no, the Holy Ghost is sort of the uh Sort of the it's Ringo like a... of the um, of the uh, of the Trinity. It's it's like if your favorite Harry Potter character is Cho Chang. It's it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Unusual, it's this unusual choice. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not arguing with you, but like odd character for you to pick out. <laughs> it is. It is odd though. Just my favorite Bible character is the Holy Ghost. Is like oh okay. I mean, it's okay. not a wrong answer. Uh, okay. Like, like, is, is that okay. a weird, like, a, like a Bible okay. sona? Like, can you have a Bible sona, like, just a character in the Bible you really... Is that what saints are? Are saints Bible sonas? I have so many questions. <laughs> oh, we're definitely going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm totally Saint Vitus. I'm totally Saint Vitus. <laughs> Although I will point out that, like, God does not technically have a gender. 
according to most of Christianity, despite the, like, the, the use of masculine terms to refer to God, one, is not consistent throughout the Bible. God is cons- frequently referred to using feminine metaphors uh, in early Jewish texts. But also, like, the whole, like, masculine pronoun thing is just an honorific. Like, we, we don't mean he's literally our dad. And, like, no one's trying to claim <laughs> that God literally has a penis other than Mormons. <laughs> and what a mighty penis it is! Yeah, like they're, they're very, they're very emphatic that it, like no, it's it's like it's like pretty impressive. Like, don't worry, God our Lord and Savior has is the hung. roundest testicles you've ever seen. It's basically <laughs> spheres, <laughs> ideal orbs. Oh yeah, I'd no, like to apologize to my mom. Are about God's nine inches of uncut glory. You are also in a cult. That's, I'm calling it now. Yeah, <laughs> you're weird. Yeah, and yeah I'm just. I I feel very confident. Yeah, if 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 at any point your preacher goes on an odd tangent about the exact nature and heft of the holy balls. Like, you might be in a cult. Like, the Trinity is not a reference to Johnson and the two boys, okay? <laughs> the word girth should not come up a lot in religious sermons. It's just... Yeah, nor, no. nor the word surging. If the word surging comes up, that is not a sermon. It is softcore porn. I stand by it. <laughs> Describe any body part as surging. Congratulations, it's softcore porn. Surging eyebrows, oh, you know, just. No. Um. <laughs> yeah. I think I should pray more. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> probably wouldn't help. It's, the damage is done, Jessica. Scorched earth. Your soul is scorched earth. <laughs> if we're all made in God's image and God made me, then he's gotta have a sense of humor. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Just just yeah, back to the I was raised Catholic and uh you never really get a straight answer as a small Catholic child to what is the Holy Ghost. They're kinda like mm. at one point it was a bush and it's it's part of the three, and uh, go run and play. We have snacks in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally, literally, ask any Christian you know. If you're a non-Christian, just walk up to a Christian, and you're like, what's the Holy Ghost? Like, what's the Holy Spirit? You will get just some vague nonsense as you see the fear grow in their eyes. <laughs> like, yeah, no one it's, knows. It's never made totally clear. Even, yeah, it's it, you always get these very vague answers that are like, well... It's is it a literal ghost? I don't I don't know. Isn't God the Father also like a spirit thing? Like doesn't have a body. <laughs> no idea. I have no idea. I like I'd like it if if God goes like full paranormal activity, like he just rattles your cupboards to freak you out every now and then. Go to church. Woo slam slam You've slam. You've gotta slam. set up like security cameras to capture the Holy Ghost, like that sounds like a horror movie that costs four dollars to make, and I would watch it. Absolutely, someone's probably making it right now. Now that they're trapped inside. Likewise, in 1779, the Public Universal Friend published a collection of their teachings titled "Some Considerations Propounded to the Several Sorts and Sects of the Professor of Professor of This Age," which was both quite a mouthful and heavily plagiarized from works by Isaac Pennington and William Sewell. 
The two were a pair of prominent Quaker writers from the late 17th and early 18th century, i.e. fairly recent to the people of the late 18th century. Uh, it's a bit like if in 2019 I took The Great Gatsby and the collected work of works of Roe Dahl, spliced them, and published the results as a reflection on class and wealth in the interwar era, era and small boys who live in improbably large fruits. <laughs> So just it's plagiarized and the title's worse. It's this was a this is yeah. a two out of ten effort by the public universal friend. Yeah, it was just like a less efficient, less clear version of two Quaker classics. Just fully unoriginal yeah. and worse, like every every undergrad paper. Uh, by 1783, the Public Universal Friends following had expanded significantly, to the point where they organized themselves into a formal religious sect. This was followed the next year by an eight-page pamphlet by the Prophet detailing a code of recommended social conduct for adherence, including mode of speech and dress, emphasizing plainness and modesty, comportment during worship, emphasizing silent contemplation, interactions with fellow believers and with non-believers, and even relationships between master and servant and parent and child. The beliefs and practices espoused by the public universal friend were never particularly revolutionary, largely reflective of standard Quaker teachers at the time, but they likewise dabbled in faith healing, exorcism, and dream interpretation. Okay, so they're basically rock and roll nuns. That's basically all yeah. this is. Yeah, like they're aesthetically radical, but substantively conventional. Uh, that might be the best way to put it. They're, they are basically nuns of any other Christian sect. You know, just regular Quakers with, like, a little bit of a lemon twist. Like, they're just a little zest. They're just <laughs> zesty Quakers. <laughs> they're zesty Quakers. <laughs> that sounds mm. like a failed brand of cereal from the 90s. <laughs> Oof. Like, just lime, lime rolled oats. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Oh. oh, that's I gross. do not like that at all. <laughs> I have not been trapped in this Do apartment for nearly long enough. Start putting lime in your oatmeal, please don't. Yeah, despite immediately running out of milk, I actually have plenty of food here. And, like, I did not do a big grocery shop. I just, like, as a default, have enough food to last me several months at all times. And, like, I, I was genuinely <laughs> confused by, like, the rush the rush on a lot of grocery stores. I'm like, there's nothing There's nothing wrong with the grocery stores. There's nothing wrong with the supply lines. Like, there's still cows out there, like, with udders. And it's weird that I can't get this basic necessity. But, like, the thing for me is, like, I'm like, I could just hunker down and eat whatever I have in my house for the next two months, and I'd be fine. It would start getting weird around months, about around week eight, when I'm, when I'm fucking eating... Uh, like spaghettini and frozen peas a la Dijon mustard. It's gonna be weird. <laughs> it might not be nutritionally Eight weeks sufficient. Dairy is the point where I assume a cow turns up in your living room. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just gonna start hunting them <laughs> that's in the where, night. That's where Jessica starts stealing cows in a fugue state. <laughs> that that's the point at which I showed up I show up in Lunenburg and I knock over the local pub. <laughs> you steal all their milk. I will traverse North America in my sleep for sweet, delicious dairy. <laughs> As is, I'm halfway down my sour cream reserves, and my cheese—the cheese situation is looking ugly. 
This is just what I do. And this is my response to stress, Janelle. I just need comfort that I like only that a cow's udders can Everyone provide. I know is currently either like making six-course gourmet meals in isolation, or they're just eating mustard straight out of the jar, and there's pretty much no middle ground. Uh, the public universal friend preached substantively about free will, the choice between good and evil, and universal salvation, a rejection of the Calvinist conception of predestination. Other important themes included the dangers of sin, obedience to God, dedication to the difficult path of mortal, mor- moral righteousness, and the threat of eternal damnation. Basically a cover album of Christianity's greatest hits with about 10% more The End Is Nigh, Embrace Your Gender Ambiguous Salvation. Okay, I can get behind it, but it is, alright, it's a remix. Basically standard. It's like it's like the most recent uh, crop of Star Wars movies. It's like, yeah, this is basically the same thing, but they've added some bits that are kind of nice. I don't know. It's more diverse now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Quakerism with Adam Driver. That's, <laughs> that's what this is. One way in which the Society of Universal Friends was more of an outlier was that they were pre-millennialists where most American Christians were post-millennialists, and don't worry, I will define that. Uh, It mostly comes down to whether you think Christ will return to Earth, igniting a series of apocalyptic cataclysms, followed by the establishment of a utopian thousand-year heavenly kingdom on Earth, that is pre-millennialism, or you think the utopian thousand-year heavenly kingdom comes first, followed by the second coming of Christ, apocalyptic cataclysms, etc., which is post-millennialism. That seems like a pretty stark divide. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most people, most American Christians are post-millennialists. They think the apocalypse starts with Jesus coming down, setting up a, you know, a kick-ass kingdom of no hookers or blow, and then, after a thousand years of that, it's terrible. Which is why, like, people will, like, talk very, very positively about the apocalypse in certain religious communities. It's because they think the beginning of the apocalypse is just wonderful, rather than terrible and horrifying. Honestly, if I had to sit through a thousand years of family-friendly Christian entertainment, I would happily embrace the end times. Give me plagues. Give me pestilence. I cannot listen to one more goddamn Kids Bop album. I can't do a thousand years of Veggie Tales in a world with no gin. I choose death. (laughs) (laughs) I choose death. A founder of Quakerism, (laughs) Margaret Fell, thought that women would have a key role in the coming millennium, and that female prophecy would itself be a sign of the coming apocalypse. Notably, from their inception, the Society of Friends has allowed for a high degree of formal and informal female leadership, to the point that around 50% of Quaker preachers in 1800, the year 1800, were women. I mean, progressive, but less so when you think that they thought this was just going to hurry up the apocalypse. (laughs) It's just like, oh, it's so great that we're seeing more women in leadership. Bring back Jesus. I bet any day now, Jesus is going to descend and just tell us what sinners we are. (laughs) While theologically conventional, the Society of Universal Friends was nonetheless subject to no small number of rumors and accusations surrounding their supposed criminality, depravity, and fraud, largely due to the threat of the the society posed to establish social order by their rejection of typical gender norms through pacifism, celibacy, female leadership, and the whole leader-is-a-divinely-inspired gender-neutral zombie thing. That's the best part. It's the best part. It's great. 
The sect was therefore the object of no small amount of discussion and speculation, much of it pearl-clutching in American newspapers. This coverage focusing far more on the prophet's androgynous dress and masculine comportment than it ever did their message and doctrine. Many accounts were likewise fixated on the public <laughs> universal friend's attractiveness, fine complexion, pretty eyes, and curly black hair. That's a that's weird. It's so weird. And like part of this may be because it was customary at the time for women to wear their hair covered with a cap rather than loose as the friend did. Uh, observers tended to likewise describe female adherents as imitating the preacher's masculine style and ascribe effeminacy to male adherents, justified or no. Interesting. So they're, they don't really care that it's basically diet Quaker. They just care that all the, the, the followers are a little gay. Yeah, it's just like, I, I don't like how like this, ma- this, this masculine young lady with a purdy mouth keeps telling me to repent. Like, that's a lot of it. <laughs> she makes me feel funny. Yeah, it's just like, I have some feelings deep inside I don't know how to deal with. Like, on the one hand, I'm horny. On the other hand, I'm a Quaker. And on the third mutant hand... Uh, you're dressed like a man. So all of this is confusing for me. Um, I We literally don't even have indoor plumbing. And it, I'm upset as it is. Basically, the Hellfire segment of Disney's animated Hunchback of Notre Dame is everything that you need to know about Abrahamic religion. <laughs> That's a good song. A a preacher singing about how he is angry because there is an attractive woman and she has to either marry him or he will burn her. That's basically all you need to know about how <laughs> this works. About how the world has been for women in Abrahamic religions for thousands of years. <laughs> Just hatred toward the object of your desire is such a deeply ingrained part of our culture. That that's pretty much all you need. You're, you're all set. If, if one of our listeners happens to be an alien who's living among us trying to learn our ways, which is probably more likely than I think. Uh, at least my dad considers it extremely likely. Judging by the number of people who say they identify with me in our reviews. But yeah, we're gonna save you a couple thousand hours of study. Just go boot up that clip on YouTube and you're all good. I have weird feelings in my pants and clearly it is your fault. <laughs> so that's- that even- even genderless zombie women cannot escape from this. Yeah, it's like, you will be objectified whether or not whether you like it or not, you gender neutral motherfucker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> while many describe the prophet and their disciples as devout and sincere, these were very much in the minority. One accusation against the sect stands out. On March 28, 1787, an anonymous account published in the Pennsylvania Gazette claimed that a woman named Sarah Wilson had survived an attempt on her life by a member of the sect, Abigail Dayton. According to Wilson, on the evening of January 4th, uh, she had attended a meeting of the Universal Friends at the home of David Va- uh, Wagner. Uh, at the meeting, she had suggested that some of the unusual phenomena discussed by the group were perhaps not signs of God's will, but rather natural occurrences, to which Dayton took offense. Dayton then said that Wilson should be careful what she said against them, for very strange things had happened to people who had talked against the friend, including sudden deaths and great misfortunes. So basically, if you <laughs> if you point out that rainbows are just a trick of the light, they push you down the stairs. Yeah, like that's sort of the implication here. 
That night, there was an argument started by Wilson over who would share which of the two beds in the room set aside for six of the women in attendance to sleep in. These being Wilson, Dayton, Sarah Richards, Rachel Mallon, Wilson's sister Mary Bramwell, and her niece Betsy Bramwell. Richards and Bramwell left, while Betsy and Dayton claimed one bed, Mallon and Wilson the other. Dayton stayed up writing by candlelight, while Wilson pretended to be a, pretended to sleep. When the clock struck one, Dayton stood and quietly approached the bed where Wilson lay, then held the candle near her face before leaving, entering the adjoining, adjoining room described as an apothecary's shop. Sometime later, Dayton returned without the candle, once more approaching the bed. Wilson asked Dayton what she was up to, at which point Dayton said nothing and left once more, retreating downstairs. Shortly thereafter, she returned once more with a lit candle, undressed, and went to bed. Wilson, perturbed, moved to the other side of the bed. Anna Steyer, a friend of the Wagner family, of the Wagner, Wagner family and fellow sect member who had been up late, then took the place where Wilson had been. At 3 a.m., Wilson awoke to find Dayton atop Steyer, one hand at her throat and the other over her mouth and nose. Wilson screamed at Dayton to let go. According to Wilson, Sarah Richards and David Va Wagner then tried to convince her that she had not seen Dayton mid-murder attempt, but rather the devil in the form of Abigail Dayton. Uh... This sounds like an exhausting sect to belong to. Like, we play musical strangle beds until three in the morning. Everybody is getting out of bed and getting up and moving. Just go the fuck to sleep. Go to sleep. <laughs> this go is exhausting. To go to bed. Do you, do you all sleep <laughs> like, until noon? Like, holy shit. I'm like, I'm like, this would just be a frustrated group of people to be around. I'm like, I'm like, I want my own room. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'd like be ready to commit murder. Trip. Like, holy fuck, sleep. Yeah, like, at this point, I'm like, I under fully understand wanting to commit murder at that point. I'm like, go to bed. Just go to bed. Go to bed. Like, Stop talking. Go to sleep or I will go put to you to sleep. <laughs> go to bed. While Dayton later confirmed parts of Wilson's account on August 22nd of that year, namely that there was indeed a meeting at the... Wagner house on the evening of January 4th, that they had shared a bedroom, that she had indeed stayed up late writing, and that she had entered the apothecary shop to get medication for her own use. However, Dayton likewise claimed that she had never threatened Wilson, and that rather than sneaking up on the bed in the dark, Wilson had asked her for a chamber pot. Dayton claims to have been woken by Steyer, who said that something was wrong with Wilson, who was in a strange rage. Neither Steyer nor any of the other women in the room corroborated either Wilson or Dayton's account of events. It's difficult to determine... Ah, the classic, I was peeing and then fell into a rage defense. It's difficult to determine which version is accurate or why the other women never made public testimony. But relations between the Wilson family and the Society of Universal Friends were quite poor at the time. Mary Bramwell, one of Wilson's two sisters, who had joined the sect, had left her husband and children in order to follow the friend, and their father, George Wilson, eventually pressured her into leaving the sect and returning to her family. It's somewhat more plausible that Sarah Wilson was likewise pressured into publishing a false account, smearing the, friend, the Society of Universal Friends, than it is that one member of the sect took such exception to a single disparaging comment that attempted murder seemed like the appropriate response. 
Never mind that the rest of the group apparently decided that appropriate damage control was to pressure Wilson into agreeing that the devil was just out for some late-night cross-dressing and strangulation. It's just, like, the weirdest everything that could have been in this situation. Everyone in this situation like, is it's behaving only pl- in the weirdest possible way. It's like, the Wilson's story only makes sense insofar as you fully believe that this is an actual divorce from reality cult. Which, a lot of the public did at the time. It, it They just kind of sound like religious lesbians who don't want to marry men. Yeah, that it just seems like there's like this core group of dykes who want to be left alone to just sort of like les it up in the woods. And you know what? I, I <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's like frantically taking notes for her own cult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I I have like I have I have 10 pages on this stuff and let me just tell you it was an awakening. It I just I like it just really put in a lot of detail into plans <laughs> I've had since childhood. I just, I feel more ready. I feel like a messenger from the past. Like a me is speaking from the echoes of my soul. It's just guiding me on my path to starting a cult in Stanley Park after Vancouver is uh, left to the wolves. Jessica's shopping list right now is just like milk, sour cream, cabin, lesbians. (laughs) I already know a lot of lesbians. I'm ready. Mm. I've prepared for this my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, experience living in the woods, check. Lesbians, check. All I need now is robes. (laughs) You're about to have a real weird interaction at Fabricland. That's all that I know. We're just going to all wear Garfield-style robes because those were the cheapest. It's just, it's just, it's just gonna be Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo fleece. Novelty sleep onesies. Not quite the same, <laughs> but you get the idea. Uh, I'm just saying that our priests are all gonna be wearing Snuggies, and I'm proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it still sounds better than getting, I don't know, getting shot by the British. <laughs> getting evicted from Stanley Park by the Vancouver PD still sounds better. The growing public furor following these accusations played no small part in the Society of the Society of Universal Friends' decision to abandon the decadent wickedness of the godless metropolis of eastern Pennsylvania and to retreat into the wilderness to found their own settlement in the harsh backcountry of central New York. This was to be the New Jerusalem, prophesied in the Book of Revelation. The public universal friend first sent a small vanguard, which established a small community on the western edge of Seneca Lake, called the Friends Settlement. The friend and others then joined in early 1790. Unfortunately for the Universal Friends, instead of finding peaceful contemplation along the quiet frontier, they found themselves at ground zero for a massive, poorly regulated land rush following the end of the Revolutionary War, when the Treaty of Paris gave the newborn United States sovereignty over what had until then been the traditional homeland of the Iroquois. Due to both the vagueness of many royal charters and the, um, and the mismatch between European and native concepts of property rights, the exact lines of where each jurisdiction began or ended was often unclear. One of these areas was western New York, which by royal charter was technically part of Massachusetts. Though ar- through arbitration in 1786, the two states decided that New York would have political control over the area, while Mass- Massachusetts would have the right, first right to sell the new land to private owners. 
like and like this is as boring as it gets. I'm I'm moving through the uh, banalities of. <laughs> we gotta uh, go through the of, the land rights portion of this of this yeah, uh, podcast. Trust me, this is important. You, you need it to understand what happens <laughs> later. We will get to the f- asexual forest lesbians in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's what um, I'm here for. That's that's the good stuff. A hundred percent. In 1787, Phelps and Gorman, a pair of land developers, had bought a six million acre slice of land in western New York from the cash-strapped state of Massachusetts. The same year, a prominent Hudson Valley landlord, Colonel John Livingston, led a coalition of affluent New Yorkers and British officials based out of Canada, later known as the Lassays, in a scheme to dodge a law stating only New York could buy land from the Iroquois by instead acquiring a 999-year lease over 18 million acres of land. This lease just so happened to overlap heavily with Phelps and Gorman's purchase. Colonialism, hell yeah. Uh, Just entrepreneurs in their own way. And by by their own way, I mean (laughs) illegal. Um, I was going to say, illegally uh, navigating or circumventing treaties, you know, as... As one does. There was quite a bit of haggling and shenanigans regarding the disputed land, which came to an end when the legitimacy of the laissez claim was rejected once and for all by George Clinton, who was apparently the governor of New York and not the lead singer of noted musical collective Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, but imagine if he had been. (laughs) Oh, that would have been great. I wish history was more fun. (laughs) (laughs) The Society of Universal Friends had sold their meeting houses and created a collective pot of money for the purchase, intending to later split the land acquired in rough proportion to each contributor's initial stake in the project, albeit with enough land set aside for poorer members to allow for their subsistence. The responsibility for the land buy was delegated to one of the Friends' lieutenants, James Parker, who acquired what one might call a suspiciously good deal on 1,400 acres of prime land. Parker's deal had been with the Lassays, and rather than 1,400 acres, they wound up with only 1,104 acres in a strip six miles long and 92 rods wide. The rod, also known as a perch or a pole, being an old English measurement equivalent to 16 and a half feet. This means that the land was 1,518 feet or around 463 meters wide. God damn it, Americans will measure with anything but the metric system. Keep your meters, I have a 16-foot rod. That's a good base unit, 16. (laughs) Just use feet or yards. Please stop complicating this. Why? None of your units of measurements evenly fit into any of your other units of measurements. This is absurd. You have a 12-base system where the unit 12 is rarely used, and I hate it. But this all left the Universal Friends with both less than 12% of the promised land and a massive financial loss. Trouble upon trouble, their particular tract of land was also on the eastern edge awarded to the state of Massachusetts, known as the Preemption Line. The Society of Universal Friends Settlement, which they had already started to build in the summer of 1788, was expected to land well west of the line, but surveyors instead found that it ran through the Friends' land, with most of their claim on the wrong side, in land owned by the state of New York. I hate it when asexual, sapphic communism goes poorly. 
It's my favorite <laughs> kind of communism. It's my it's the best kind of communism. <laughs> really, this is the problem with Russia all along. We needed more lesbians in there. They would have fixed it all. The, um, James Parker petitioned Governor Clinton, a fair man despite his failings as a lyricist and hip-hop master. The settlement already (laughs) contained 60... (laughs) The settlement already contained 60 families, cleared land, and two mills to attract other migrants, and Parker argued that their errors in the placement of the land should be balanced against their contribution to the welfare of the state. May 9th, 1791, New York granted the society 12,000 acres for the cost of a New York shilling per acre, equivalent to 12.5 cents each, a very low price even for the time. Regardless, the Universal Friends voted to replace Parker as their land agent with Judge William Potter and Thomas Hathaway Sr. And, like, isn't it amazing that, like, all the different states had different forms of currency at this point? That's weird. They'd still do it if they could get away with it. They all hate each other. Oh, absolutely. If, if if it wasn't for the fact that, like, Alabama's dollar would just be worthless against New- the New York dollar, they absolutely would. <laughs> if there would be a battalion of New Yorkers just sawing Florida into the ocean if they thought they could do it. Yeah, like, if Montana, if Montana was allowed to have their own currency, they'd still be on the gold standard. Oh, give it another couple weeks of this coronavirus thing. We'll get there. Uh, my aunt who lives in Montana has been calling this uh, a conspiracy for, like, months now, so I hope she's enjoying herself. Is this the aunt that thinks the government controls the weather? Yes, this is absolutely that aunt. I like that you have to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hang on, this is the one who thinks that the government took out her trees. No, that was my grandma. But, but she did convince my grandma oh. that the government took out the trees with a... Moon-mounted laser. And, like, my biggest question for, like, the government moon laser conspiracy is just, you know, which government? If it's the American government, scary. If it's the Canadian government, that's adorable. Yeah, like, that's just (laughs) hilarious. Like, Like, I'm not only, like, am I questioning how exactly they got a laser powerful enough to take down a tree in rural British Columbia from the moon without also igniting the atmosphere, how exactly is the Canadian government keeping this a secret? (laughs) (laughs) Our our countries have actually been to the moon. We have a big arm in space, but that's about it. We're so proud of that arm. (laughs) But also we have moon lasers to take out specific trees in northern Alberta. Uh, hey, hey, The government hey. has First moon Columbia. lasers and they use them for landscaping. Specifically to terrify my grandma. It's my new favorite conspiracy. Eventually, came, people came to suspect the results of the initial survey. So in late 1792, New York ordered a second survey, this time placing the line once more further to the west meaning that the part that part of the land awarded by the state of New York was not in fact theirs to give. This land had by this point changed hand no less than three times, from Phelps to Gor- and Gorman to financier Robert Morris to a group of British speculators called the Pulteney Associates. The Universal Friends who had found their property now to the east of the line petitioned the resident agent of the Pulteney Associates, Charles Williamson, not to sell their houses out from under them, to which he agreed. Nonetheless, these 25 Universal Friends had to pay for their properties a third time. 
You get to light somebody on fire at that point. That's just ridiculous. Honestly, this is this is the point at which like you are allowed one free consequence murder. <laughs> you you get you get a gimme. Due to rampant speculation, the worth of the land in western New York grew rapidly over the next few years. In a fit of greed, a small coalition of 17 Universal Friends, including Judge William Potter and James Parker, to whom the land had been granted by New York State, in trust for the rest of the society, split the land amongst themselves with no regard for the other sect members settled on it, uh, disp- dispossessing so she several was right families. To not trust men. She was absolutely correct. A hundred percent. Just the moment a man was in charge of business affairs, it just immediately went to shit. Screwed <laughs> everyone else out of the land and money. Like, unfortunately, the state ruling granting the lands to Potter and Parker to hold on behalf of the society was not established in the deed to the land itself, leaving the, the dispossessed without recourse. This infighting and betrayal discouraged many of the Universal Friends who had remained to the east from relocating, and several who had relocated to leave, including Abigail and Abraham Dayton, who left for Canada in the winter of 91-92, to urging the Prophet to come with them. While the Friend remained in West New York, in, 19, uh, in 1794, they did move their home further out, out of the Friend settlement to another township of the, on the society's land, known as Jerusalem, in order to distance themselves from members of the sect who would so easily betray promises to their fellow Universal Friends. Jerusalem came to house many of those same dispossessed Universal Friends whose family fell under the protection of the Universal Friend themselves. Man, I just... The knowledge that there are Canadian public universal friends makes me want to pull up a genealogy chart. I want right? to be descended from these people. <laughs> this is excellent. People would be like, like, tell me about your ancestors. I'm like, they were friends. Like, oh, that's nice with each other. No, no, you don't understand. They were public they were universal, universal friends. friends. And then the weird dude at the bar leaves me alone for the rest of the night. <laughs> Further, the massive rush of settlers to the area gave little time to establish farms and supply lines sufficient to support it. Shortages of food and basic necessities were common, and in 1789, shortages caused the family of Universal Friend Castle Danes to subsist on milk and boiled nettles for six weeks. This is you. Holy shit, this whole cult is you. (laughs) (laughs) They combined their souls into one being. I've never subsisted on boiled nettles. That being no, said, I, I like absolutely would eat the same food for six weeks in a row. I would do that on purpose. You don't even have to starve me. I feel like as long as there is milk available, the second food doesn't matter so much. It's completely incidental. That is absolutely true. Um, it, it's it's just sort of this problem where like a lot of things that were like deemed to be human rights abuses uh, in the investigations of Guantanamo Bay, I do for fun. Like, and you never quite get used to the look of terror on the, your seat partner's face on the three hundredths repetition of the first 30 seconds of All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey. Like, it's really then that you can sort of smell the fear. In fairness, though, things that other people find enjoyable, you find to be torture. A Guantanamo where you are hugged and fed novel foods every day is your worst nightmare. It is an offense. It is a front into my religion. I wish to be fed nothing but milk and grapefruit. <laughs> and mashed potatoes from a sandwich bag. <laughs> 
if you cut a hole in one corner, you can just squeeze them into your mouth like a tube. <laughs> That's how Jessica sneaks snacks into the movie theater. Just a loose bag of potato. <laughs> if you go to the movies with Jessica in the dark, you just hear her sucking mashed potato <laughs> out of a plastic bag. It's really something. Just a heavy whiff of garlic, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, mashed potatoes are just a garlic and dairy transference device. They're just the medium by which you consume more varieties of dairy at once. You need help. Not a hug. You don't need a hug. That'll send you right over the edge. But you do need help. (laughs) Oh, I am already full on feral. I am nocturnal. It is not good. It's been a week, Janelle, and I am not coping. (laughs) I can tell. (sighs) Oh, when you're in the news next week because you fought an old lady over a milk jug in a plague doctor mask, uh, I never knew you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I will I will divulge nothing when the police pick me up. It's the thing is, like, it's not even the isolation that is the problem, because, like, I don't care. The problem is just that I have severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And the more that people talk about infection, the more nauseous I get. You will have no skin left on your knuckles by week's end. Oh, yeah, like, I, I, it is getting dangerous. Like, if I have any skin left after the end of the apocalypse, uh, it will be a victory. If I still have, if I am, like, people have been talking about, like, oh, I'm gonna have, like, a really shaggy haircut. If I am not bald by this time next week, it will be a success. (laughs) Well, if you find any good eczema remedies, pass them along to my father. He's been washing his hands with Clorox wipes, and his skin just looks like scales. (laughs) (laughs) He is becoming the lizard person. It is time. When I got in the car, when he picked me up in New York at four o'clock in the morning- He's a little old for his first uh, Less than half an hour after somebody shot off a full clip of bullets in front of my apartment. uh, I, like, get in the Jeep, and he immediately goes, hand wipe? And he offers me a pack of Clorox wipes, and I was like- that's not what that is. And he's like, no. no, but I've been using them anyway. Also, my knuckles are bleeding a lot. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Truly, this is a mystery oh, that no. cannot be solved. Uh, your father's a little old for his first shed, but I'm proud of him. <laughs> he's molting. <laughs> Manually. With a Clorox wipe. <laughs> the Universal Friends living in western New York were demographically interesting for a number of reasons, first and foremost being the number of female-led households, as revealed by the 1800 census. 13 households out of 65, in fact, a full 20%. Compared that the nearby township of Seneca, where only 4% of households were female-led. In the year 1800, the average female head of household was a widow who led her family temporarily until she remarried. Female head of heads of household among the Universal Friends, however, were often widows who remained unmarried, married women who had left their husbands behind and followed the prophet to West, Western New York with their children, and even single women who had never married. The Comforter's own household was composed of a large number of unmarried women. Some of these female-led households even had adult men, because unlike other communities, Control of the family did not default to the nearest man above the age of 25. Women in Universal Friends communities held domestic power by their own right, not simply out of a lack of male alternative. In particular, prominent women close to the prophet themselves were more likely to remain unmarried and more likely to take leadership roles in religious services. 
basically their religious philosophy is, uh, you know, they've got stuff on the apocalypse, they've got stuff on Jesus, and also men ain't shit. <laughs> uh, that was their real innovation. <laughs> was just like, hey, maybe, maybe your penis is not your primary qualification. Universal Friend families also had far fewer children than similar families in the area, an average of four rather than six, with first-generation followers of the Prophet having an average of five and second-generation followers having an average of three. They also had a legit dude in their community, and this is completely unrelated, this is a tangent, they had a legit dude in their community named Pearly Gates. P-E-R-L-E-Y Gates. Pearly Gates. That sounds like a novelty <laughs> license plate, but it's still right. excellent. While life for the average frontiersman was undoubtedly undoubtedly difficult, the public universal friend resided in relative ease in a manner similar to the rural gentry, as their followers tended to their needs and material comforts. By 1814, they lived alongside their large household in an elaborate two-story frame house overlooking the lake. They likewise ate before all of their followers and traveled in a carriage. The decline of the Society of Universal Friends came as the result of a number of factors, one being widespread loss of morale following the, the land betrayal by Potter and Parker. Another was the defection of several former male disciples, including Par Potter and Parker, who engaged in a campaign of vicious rumor-mongering and harassment through the, through the legal system. Slanderous claims against the prophet primarily focused on accusations of sexual depravity and even infanticide, while legal harassment involved the exploitation of Potter's prominence and Parker's position as a justice of the peace for Ontario County starting in 1793. So basically, uh, in the last 200 years, nothing's really changed. Women or Non-binary people in positions of power just get called whores. Yeah, basically. And accused of being baby killers. That's pretty much par for the course. Sorry, baby killing whores. That's that's really the, that's been the going line. It's been successful all the way along, <laughs> and uh, they're they're continuing to invest. You know, sometimes you got to go with the classics. <laughs> oh Jesus! I do like that the the proof that the public universal friend lived in luxury was like having a two story house. Like ah uh, yes, the greatest <laughs> right. luxury of all. Stairs. <laughs> An attic. Being able to stack people, that is luxury. What riches. In 1794, Thomas Potter, son of William Potter, sued the prophet to return a horse, which his wife, Patience Nay Wilkinson, had given to the public universal friend without her husband's permission. The mare in question was one that the prophet had previously given to them. The Public Universal Friend initially refused the writ on the grounds that it was in the name of Jemima Wilkinson, though eventually a compromise was reached to accept the warrant under the name of Universal Friend, commonly called Jemima Wilkinson. The artist formerly known as <laughs> Jemima Wilkinson. The, the prophet formerly known. Uh, Benedict Arnold Potter, <laughs> actual name, brother, brother of Thomas, was likewise a judge for the county and used his own position to undermine the Society of Universal Friends. Further, on September 17th, 1799, Parker issued a warrant for the arrest of the friend on charge of blasphemy, specifically on the grounds that the prophet had claimed to be Jesus Christ reincarnate. 
This turned out to be the easy part, as Ontario County officials struggled to actually apprehend them. Authority to make the arrest was delegated to Thomas Hathaway Jr., who attempted to intercept the friend on horseback as they rode accompanied only by Rachel Mallon on their way to visit followers at the City Hall settlement. Rather than submit to arrest, the friend threw the horse into a gallop down the slope towards the lake, escaping. Next, Constable uh, Eliphalet Norris and Enoch Mallon, uh, brother of Rachel, approached Both the prophet in the cloth names. workshop. Oh, it's just, just a train wreck of syllables. <laughs> approached the prophet in a cloth workshop across the road from the friend's home. Upon entering, the women there mobbed them, tearing their clothes, throwing them out, and barring the door. Uh, finally, <laughs> it's yeah, one way to do it. Just a straight up ass whooping. Parker and a posse of around thirty men, the vast majority of majority of them former Universal Friends, arrived at the public Universal Friends house under the cover of darkness. When those inside the bar- inside barred the door, one of the men broke it down with an axe, shining style and they entered to arrest the friend. <laughs> like, just full-on, here's Johnny. <laughs> All work and no play make frontiersmen very dull indeed. Um, and <laughs> the prophet had been sick and convalescing, however, and the doctor the posse brought with them, Dr. Fargo, determined that they were too ill to travel, and the arrest party instead worked out a deal for the friend to appear in court voluntarily. So they could have just... This all could have been a letter instead of breaking down the door in the middle of the night. This is the 1800s equivalent of a meeting that could have been an email. Yeah, just walk over and <laughs> None knock. None of this was necessary. None of this was necessary. <laughs> From the beginning, the legitimacy of the trial was questionable, as the court had appointed William Potter to assist the district attorney in the preparation of the indictment and the presentation of evidence on behalf of the prosecution. Former Universal Friends gave numerous depositions reporting that they had heard the friend refer to themselves as the Son of God, denying that the law of the state was above themselves, commanding followers to complete subservience, and attempting to destroy marriages. This, allegedly, was done through intimidation and threats of violence to both life and livelihood. Despite the odds against the friend, the three-judge panel came to disagreement over whether or not blasphemy was even a criminal offense in the state of New York, with one ruling yay and the other two ruling very much nay. I feel like you gotta nail that down. (laughs) Yeah, like, just like, is this a crime? (laughs) Maybe before you arrest somebody, you should really have that hammered out. Yeah, just like, we we should just, like, do our due diligence and figure out whether this is illegal. (laughs) The grand jury therefore rejected the indictment. The presiding judge then invited the the accused to address the assembled, and the crowd that had gathered to witness the public universal friend's downfall was instead treated to a sermon. It's it's like arresting somebody for being really in defeat, and then you get there and everyone's like, well, actually, it's not illegal to be in defeat. So here's a big speech about feet. Like, this (laughs) this is weird. This is not what anyone was expecting. Being weird is not illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, or I'd be in jail well before now. Oh, God, yeah, I would turn you in I myself. would be a felon. <laughs> There'd be substantial reward money by now. Yeah, they'd, they'd have my face on the side of buildings. Reward. <laughs> if caught. Dead or alive. <laughs> you are the kingpin. Mm, I am the unquestioned crown wielder. 
I am the king of weird. <laughs> and the queen. I can do both. Uh, notably, while the rebellion against the authority of the public universal friend was almost almost exclusively male, several of the wives of uh, prominent apostates remained loyal to the friend, including Penelope Potter, wife of William Potter. Further, most male supporters did indeed remain loyal to the friend. This faction was rather a small cabal composed largely of highly politically connected men who leveraged those connections against the prophet in pursuit of personal gain. The Prophet being the most powerful and affluent figure set against their own consolidation of land, wealth, and power. Another land dispute involved young Eliza Richards, who eloped with Enoch Mallon at the age of 16 in 1796. As Eliza's husband, Mallon claimed ownership of all the property she had inherited from her mother, Sarah Richards, who had, of course, held large swaths of the public Universal Friends land in trust as their primary agent in worldly affairs. He argued that Richard's will did not establish that the land was held in trust, and that it thus belonged to Eliza and, well, him. He further claimed that the explicit transfer of property to his sister Rachel Mallon, now agent to the Comforter, was not a trust transfer, but rather a gift conveying life right to the property, which, after Rachel Mallon's death, should revert to Eliza and, uh, him. Holy shit, there's no laws in this time. Everything is just whatever... The nearest man says it is. In 1780, uh, in 1798, Enoch Mallon began a court challenge exploiting the vague phrasing of Richard's will, facing his own sister in court as the primary agent of the public universal friend. While the case failed in the lower court, in 1799, Enoch Mallon had already begun selling off parcels of the friend's land as if it were his. After several years of this flagrant nonsense, in 1811, Rachel Mallon filed suit on behalf of the Prophet, requesting the ejection of Enoch, Eliza, and the various illegal purchasers of the friend's land from the New York Court of Chancery. Enoch Mallon, et al., responded with the accusation that the friend and their associates had in fact doctored the will. While it took five years for the hearing to be held, in the meantime, Enoch and Eliza Mallon sold their contested right to the property for $1,000 to prominent uh, lawyer Elisha Williams and immigrated to Canada. The Court of Chancery decided the case in Rachel Mallon and the Prophet's favor on July 11th, 1823. Then, in 1828, New York State's highest appellate court, the Court of Errors, upheld the ruling. By this point, however, the public universal friend had been dead for nearly a decade, having passed away for the second and oh. final time on July 1st, 1819. <laughs> the second and final time is just such a... That's... Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such an excellent sentence. <laughs> The, the Society of Public Universal Friends, long racked by internal division and lengthy court battles, continued to decline in the decades following the death of its prophet, battered by slander and outside enemies. The Public Universal Friend constructed their will, signed as ever with an X, to care for the remnants of their household and indigent members of the sect after their death. Part of the, de the decline was in no small part due to the mismanagement of the friend's estate by Margaret and particularly Rachel Mallon, the latter, latter of which divided much of the land she controlled among her nieces and nephews. The sect, as a distinct religious organization, um, ended uh, with the death of its last member in the 1870s. David, we had, there was just such promise. This could have yeah. been a utopia of 
asexual quasi-lesbian communism, and instead we got lengthy court battles over nonsense. Yeah, it's just like a bunch of really angry dudes just being super mad at a bunch of lesbians who don't believe in touching. Right, you have everything you need to be the most interesting cult in history. You have a genderless undead zombie prophet. You have a whole bunch of angry widows who are done with men's shit. You have just a bunch of people who decide to go live in upstate New York like little Mormon communists. And uh, no, no, it all ends in, no. in a decades-long battle over land titles that somehow yeah. everybody lost. Everybody lost. Just everybody involved lost. <laughs> There's There are just so many more interesting conclusions we could have gotten, but no, we got no. the worst one. Don't worry, it'll be better the God second time. <laughs> I've got it figured we out by now. public universal friend. <laughs> Jessica's like, I know what I have to do. In these trying times, we I need gotta a new prophet. <laughs> I need to start with an expert in contract law and then go from there. That's why I know so many lawyers this time around. <laughs> I've learned from my mistakes. <laughs> I have enough. As many times as it takes, I will use. <laughs> Unlimited mulligans. No. I'm... I'm I'm gay, taking a reshot. Time, death, law, and gender cannot hold me back. Worship <laughs> me. This is the uh, this my existence is the relig the theological equivalent of picking up your ball out of the rough and putting it on the green. I will succeed. You can't keep me down. <laughs> death is but a sand trap. <laughs> Uh, in any case, uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, we hope that you are washing I your hands and staying inside. Wash your goddamn hands. Wash them! Your prophet <laughs> commands it. I have been Jessica, a.k.a. Jemima, a.k.a. the public universal friend. I have been Janelle, possibly accompanied by COVID-19. And we have been fat, French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous.